If you have a Bible, uh, please turn in it to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue walking uh, through this series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be studying today Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. And we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, when he began his ministry, burst on the scene and said, the kingdom of the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. And so when Jesus said that, when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he was declaring that the rule and reign of God was breaking into the world in this new way through the Messiah, Jesus. And so when he says repent and believe in the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand, he is in, in declaring in that that there are going to be those who are a part of that kingdom and that those who are not going to be a part of that kingdom. And so we want to examine today, well, how do you get to be a part of that kingdom? And so the title of today's sermon is uh, The Way of Getting In, I think. Is that what I said? Uh, yeah, The Way of Getting In. What does it mean? How do we get into and be a part of that kingdom of God that Jesus is Lord over? And so in this text, we're going to see those who are on the outside come in. We're going to see those who kind of look like they should be insiders but actually be exposed as outsiders. And we're going to see this growing tension between Jesus and his kingdom and the kind of established religious authority and tradition of the religious leaders. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we're going to get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word from Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified. And they all glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there was many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees 
fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and, and, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot going on in these verses. We ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, help us to know them and understand them and glean from them that which you would have us know this morning. Father, we, we know that without your Spirit showing up and doing a work that only He can do, that this, this reading of Scripture will, will not return what it's, what it's promised. It will not return life and, and transformation. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would be here and that You would add to the reading and the preaching of this Word that which You would have mercy, church, now. Father, we ask that You would help us to understand what it means to, to follow You what it means to be forgiven, what it means that you are our Lord and Messiah, Jesus. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we study this text. Lord, that it would go all to your glory and our joy. And we pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. There was a man, a seminary professor named Anthony Hokema, and he was a professor at Calvin Seminary up in Michigan, and he wrote a lot of books, and one of his books was called The Four Major Cults. And in that book, he examines the beliefs of Mormonism, uh, Christian science, Seventh-day Adventism, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he kind of goes through their source documents to say, what do these people believe? And he calls these four groups cults, the major cults in particular, because they all take aspects of Christianity, and then they tweak it. They add something to it. Like the, the Mormons have the Book of Mormon, which is the key to understanding not only their whole faith, but the Bible as well. And then their Book of Mormon is actually more authoritative than the Bible itself. And so one of the marks of a cult, according to Hokema, is this need for extra-biblical revelation, this need for some sort of knowledge that isn't found in the Bible. Now, I think one of the reasons why these four groups are so particularly effective at gathering large groups of people is because they all take a kernel of truth from Christianity and they, and they add something onto it, but also there's something in human nature. We love to know things that other people don't. Like We love to have that little bit of information that gives us a sense of power or prestige or privilege over other people. We love to be in the know and have something that other people don't have. And so, contra the four major cults, contra the Pharisees, Jesus comes on the scene as the Messiah and says, Look, the way to get into my kingdom, the way to get into my kingdom is not based on our knowledge, it's not based on your achievement, and it's not based on tradition. The way to be a gospel insider is through faith in me, the one who is the revelation of God, the one who is the Son of God. And so as we approach this text, I want to look at three things there in your bulletin. I want to look at the fruit of faith, I want to look at the posture of faith, and I want to look at the movement of faith. 
throughout the life of the believer. And so let's start there, the fruit of faith. In verses 1 and 2, we see this continued pattern in the life of Jesus. He came to preach. We saw that last week. He moved on from town to town to preach. And when he first came on the scene, he came declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus is at this house, and there's a crowd there following him, and he is preaching because that's what he came to do. And in this instance, a very large crowd had gathered, which is, again, pretty par for the course for Jesus. It was so large, in fact, that this group of men came and could not get in. Four friends, I'm assuming they're friends, were carrying a paralytic, and they wanted access to Jesus, but they were blocked by the crowd. Now, I don't know what you would have done, um, but these guys didn't freak out. Um, They didn't get violent, start kicking people out of the way. They didn't give up. They simply decided, we want to see Jesus, so we're going to climb up on the roof, and we're going to dig a hole so we can lower this guy down. Now, I want to pause there and ask kids. Kids, has there ever been a place that you wanted to go but you couldn't get into. Any thoughts, kids? A place that you wanted to go but couldn't get into? Anna's not here. She's my normal go-to. You wanted to go to the ocean, but you couldn't get in. Why couldn't you get into the ocean? Yeah, there were. Yeah, there are. All right, so maybe you couldn't get into some place because it was dangerous and scary. Anything else? Other kids out there? Graham, Aaron, you got anything? Yeah, you? Where's some place you wanted to go, Aaron? Disney World? Why couldn't you get into Disney World? Oh, it's way too many people. I agree. That's not my favorite place either. Yeah, and so there's sometimes in our lives we, we experience, there are things that we want to do but we can't get to. And that's exactly what's going on in this section. These men want to get to Jesus because they want their friend to experience some healing, but they can't quite get there. So they dug, can you imagine that, kids? They dug a hole out of the roof. It's probably rain and dirt and whatever on Jesus' head. And they lower their friend down in it just so they can see Jesus. And when that happens... When that happens, Jesus saw their faith, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the interesting thing about this, well, there's a couple of interesting things, but I'll, I'll point out one. The first reaction that Mark records is not the paralytic. It's not the friends. It's the scribes. The scribes are there questioning in their hearts, Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? No one can forgive sins but God alone. This man is blaspheming. So they're questioning in their hearts, who is Jesus? And Jesus, because he's God, supernaturally knows what's going on. He knows what's in their hearts. He perceives in his spirit that they're questioning thus. And then he says, look, so that you know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so the paralytic does. And this is obviously amazing. They've never seen anything like this. So everyone glorified God, and they declared, yeah, we've never seen anything like this. Now, two important things happen in this interaction. One, some people who are outsiders get in, and some people who look like outsiders get exposed. So there's a a literal sense in which the the four men and the paralytic are outsiders. They want to get in, but, but they can't quite. They had to figure out a way, dig a hole through the roof, Outrageous. I've never gone in a house that way. But there's also a sense in which the paralytic would have been kind of a marginalized outsider in society. If we look at other places in the other Gospels, anytime there's an invalid or a paralytic, they kind of exist on the margins 
Um, they, they depend on the generosity of other people to get money. We've all seen kind of homeless people begging for money. These are not people that are like right there in the middle of society making things happen. These are outsiders. And so this one, who is quite literally and figuratively an outsider, gets his sins forgiven, gets healed, takes his mat, and goes home. This man, because of the faith of either his faith or his friend's faith, we don't really know, becomes an insider. He becomes a part of this kingdom of God. But on the flip side, on the flip side, we see in this interaction the scribes are watching. But the scribes aren't just watching and observing. They're watching and they're questioning who is this that says he can forgive sins? Because only God alone can forgive sins. And so the scribes, for all of their religious pedigree, for all of their knowledge, for all of their participation in whatever religious system they're a part of, they are exposed as being outside of the kingdom. They don't understand what Jesus does because they don't understand who Jesus is. Despite their knowledge, despite their training, despite whatever advantage they have, they are on the outside, even though they look like they're insiders. Now, what I want us to understand is that faith in the Christian life is so much more about who Jesus is and what Jesus does rather than who you are and what you do. Because it's, it could be easy, it could be really easy to read this section and to say, look at these guys. Look at their hustle. Look at their grind. Look at their tenacity. Look at how hard they work to get to Jesus. They, dig, they climb up on the roof, and they dig a hole, and they lower their friend down. If that doesn't earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven, I don't know what does. But when Jesus talks to them, he doesn't say, I'm proud of your hard work. You've earned it. Come on in. No, he says, your faith has made you well. And so what we need to understand as God's people today is that salvation, salvation being inside the kingdom of heaven, is not the, the fruit of faith is salvation and activity. It's not salvation by activity. Because we could easily misread this and think, look at how much they did to earn this forgiveness. But no, salvation is the fruit of faith and then activity comes along with it. So what we can extrapolate from this is that there was already faith there working in the paralytic, already faith working in these friends that led them to this activity to hustle, to grind, to get to Jesus because they knew that he was worth it. It's kind of like what James says, that faith without works is dead. So when you experience salvation, it doesn't happen because you've done something. But when you believe in Jesus... That's going to produce in your life a love, not just salvation, but a level of activity and work that shows that God has done something in your heart. And so we can get that twisted, though, in, in our sinful hearts and minds. We, we want to do more. We live in a culture where we're so used to getting something based on our resumes, right? You want to go to college. You take the AP classes, you take the SAT, the ACT, 
whatever, you, you do extracurriculars, you join honor society even though they don't do anything. You know, you, you pad your resume because you want to look good on paper so that you can get into that college that you want. And then once, and you think that that's done once you're in college, but it's not. Because then when you go from there, you have to have an internship and a job and you have to have experience and you have to do stuff. You have to produce things. You have to write papers if you're in academia. You have to do good work. And so if you want another job, you have to say, look at what I've done. Look at who I am. This is what I've done to earn the right to be a part of your organization. But friends, the Christian faith is not about your resume to get into the kingdom of God. So what I would urge you to do today is tear that up. Lay down your resume. It's not about what you've done to get into the kingdom of God, but it's about what Christ has done for you. You see, the reformers back in the the Protestant Reformation, back in the, the 1600s, they talk about faith being the instrument of justification. So faith isn't something that you do to earn salvation, but it's the conduit through which you look to Jesus, you believe in who Jesus is, and by that you are forgiven. So Jesus is the source. The fruit is forgiveness. The fruit is then responding to that forgiveness because you've been declared free. It's like in the first chapter of Mark, Simon Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Jesus heals her, and she immediately gets up and starts serving. So the fruit of faith is salvation and activity, not salvation by activity. And so then the the question, the logical conclusion here then is, okay, well then what? What happens when someone becomes an an insider? And the answer is not just takes their mat and goes home. We're going to look more in verses 13 through 17. What happens? We're going to look at the posture of faith. So Jesus goes on from this house goes out by the sea, and he's, there's a crowd there, because again, par for the course for Jesus, there's always a crowd, and he's teaching them. And as he's out there by the sea, walking and teaching, he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, at the tax booth. Now, this is probably Matthew, the same Matthew that we talk about in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and Jesus stops, and he looks at him, and says, hey, follow me. This is very much parallel, uh, very much in line with what happened in Mark chapter 1 when, when Jesus called those four fishermen to come follow him. And so Levi gets up, leaves his tax booth, and he goes with Jesus. Now, this is a provocative thing. This is a shocking thing. Um, we all know tax collectors are bad, but there's a, there's a sense in which tax collector, according to, to Jewish um, like pharisaical tradition, there was a special class of sinner that the tax collectors belonged into. So there's a sense in which, obviously, this is shocking to the religious elites that, oh my gosh, why would this rabbi want a tax collector to come follow him? But there's also a sense in which calling Levi, the tax collector, to follow Jesus is provocative, not just for the the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elites, but there's also a sense that it would be provocative for the other disciples as well. You know, the common blue-collar laborers that Jesus has called before this, because the tax collector wasn't just a, a special class of sinner, according to the scribes. The tax collector was somebody that extracted taxes from the Jewish people, but often extracted more than what was necessary, skimming some off the top for themselves. So calling Levi is something that's going to offend both the religious elites, but also probably the disciples as well. And so what Jesus does is absolutely uh, appalling in, in a sense. And not only does he just say, hey, Levi, come follow me. They go, I think, to Levi's house, where Jesus has called other sinners, 
other tax collectors. And they're not just hanging out, they're eating a meal, they're sharing table fellowship. Jesus is reclined at table, and he's eating with these people. These people are not worthy to be fit in the presence of a rabbi, or so the scribes of the Pharisees thought. And so they ask Jesus' disciples, why does this guy, why is he eating with these sinners and tax collectors? They're not only shocked that Jesus forgave sins, right? We saw that with the paralytic. But they're shocked then that Jesus would hang out with sinners. And, and the key to understanding this is in two things. When Jesus said, follow me, he's not just inviting them to dinner. right? There's a sense in which that's the call. That's the external call that Jesus is making. So there's a sense in which these are sinners and tax collectors that have heard the external call of Jesus to leave behind their sinful life and to come follow him. In a sense, they have repented and believed, even though it doesn't explicitly say that that's kind of what the text is insinuating. And so Jesus, in response to the scribes, said, Look, if you're sick, you need a doctor. You don't need a doctor if you're well. So I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And so what we learn here, what we're seeing here, is that Jesus wants people to follow him, that understand their spiritual deficiency, but also understand his messianic sufficiency. We talked about last week this proclivity that we have to kind of operate in our spiritual lives like with a bootstrap spirituality where we kind of muster up the I'm enough, I can do enough spiritual things. But no, Jesus is saying the posture, the posture of a kingdom insider, the posture of one who has been called, who has repented and who has believed is one of humble confidence. One humble, knowing their own deficiencies, knowing that they're a sinner, knowing that they're spiritually sick, but confident because they know that the Messiah is the one calling them. It's not because they earned it, but because they've responded to an external call. And because of that, the Messiah himself is sufficient to meet their needs. And so the application here for us in the 21st century is that in order to follow Jesus, we also have to respond to his call in faith with a humble confidence. So what we as Christians now need to do and how we need to operate according to the scriptures is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we need not lord this over other people like we are the ones that have our act together. We need not say, we have figured it out. We know the secret sauce. We have a special secret knowledge that you don't have. No, if we are going to follow Jesus We need to understand what Martin Luther said back in the Protestant Reformation, that we are simultaneously sinners, but also simultaneously justified and forgiven by our Messiah. So in this section, again, well, no, let me say this first. It's easy to say that, right? You should be humbly confident as a follower of Jesus. Great. But here's a litmus test. I want you to ask yourself this question. Who are you okay inviting over to your house for dinner? Who are you okay inviting your house, inviting over to your house for dinner? Because if you are only okay inviting over the nice church folk or the people that are going to be somehow socially advantageous of you to invite over, somebody that's not going to ruin your reputation, And if you say, I'm going to invite those people in my home, but I'm not going to invite those other people, those bad people, those people that would mar my reputation, then you have to ask yourself, am I following Jesus with a humble confidence? 
there, there's a great um, person that I love and has really affected uh, my ministry and our family's ministry. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she was a professor, if you don't know her story, she was a professor at Syracuse um, in New York for a really long time. She was in a committed same-sex relationship and um, was writing an article to kind of tear down the evangelical religious right. And a local pastor reached out to her and said, why don't you come over for dinner? This woman who was actively trying to tear down the work of the church was actively, you know, had her hair cut short, had all kinds of earrings, had all kinds of, you know, uh, right to abortion stickers on her car. That woman drove over to this pastor's house and for two years they hung out. For two years they had dinner and she asked questions and they prayed together, they sang together. And for two years they invited this woman over and loved her. And in that simple act of inviting her over for dinner for year after year, Rosario Butterfield understood her sin, repented of her sin, became a believer, and now writes really great books and is married to a pastor. You see, we as believers in our humble confidence ought to be able to open up our lives to those with whom we disagree and with those who don't look like us for the sake of not compromising our beliefs, but for the sake of sharing the gospel and imaging this hospitality that Jesus does. Because we are so humble knowing that we didn't deserve this, but so confident knowing that we are forgiven in Christ and so we can then bring others in and share the gospel with those who aren't like us. In fact, those who we would vehemently disagree with, but we can do that. We can love them. We can show hospitality because we are following after the call of our master. And so, again, in this section, the tax collectors and the sinners who have been the consummate outsiders get to come inside because they heed the call of Christ. And the scribes, again, are exposed as outsiders who don't understand what Jesus did because they don't understand who Jesus is. And so there's a sense in which, you know, why should the scribes do that? Why should they leave their learning? Why should they leave their erudite, scholarly, you know, they know the Bible. Why should they disagree with what the Bible, what, what their Bible says? Why should they disagree with that just to follow this homeless, kind of dirty-looking rabbi who's hanging out with the disreputable, deplorable people? Well, they should because they don't understand the movement of faith. And that's what we're going to see in verses 18 through 22. So, in kind of contrast to the feasting and the table fellowship that Jesus is having with the, the sinners and the tax collectors, now we come to a point where there's a, there's a question about fasting. Mark moves the narrative forward, and he's describing the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they're, they're fasting. And some people, it's not clear who, they go up to Jesus and his disciples and they go, why do your disciples not fast, but John and the Pharisees do? Why do your disciples fast, but John and the Pharisees do? Um, Jesus responds to them, not with a critique of religious technique, but really with kind of an instruction on messianic timing. You see, verse 20 shows us that Jesus doesn't object to fasting in general. Right? There's going to be a time when the bridegroom gets taken away, and then they're going to fast. So Jesus isn't against fasting, but Jesus is saying to them, look, why would the guests of the wedding feast fast when the bridegroom is there? You're not going to fast at a party. That's not fun. That's not what a party's for. That's not what a wedding's for. You're not going to fast at that time, but you're going to fast at a later time. And again, this is provocative. When Jesus talks about this, he's not just talking about, you know, 
Galilean weddings, you know, quarterly or whatever. He's using a very specific Old Testament reference. There's lots of places in the Old Testament, but, but most, uh, I think, clearly in, in, in Hosea chapter 2, God refers to himself as the bridegroom, as the groom. It says in Hosea 2 that you know, God would send Israel into the wilderness and he would betroth himself to her. Right? That's, that's groom and bride language. And there's a sense in which the scribes know that, but they don't think, oh, that's messianic language. They think, oh, that's, that's God language. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking this category. He's taking this Old Testament category and he's saying, that's me. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom because I'm God, the son of God. And so what we have to understand as we read this is that Jesus is moving redemptive history forward. Jesus is taking something where God was talking about himself and Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus says, nope, this is now about me because God is doing something new. Thus he says, new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, really quick, if you're not somebody who makes alcoholic beverages in your house or maybe you don't understand the, the basic principles of fermentation, but for grape juice to become wine, it has to ferment. And for you science people out there, when fermentation happens, gas is released. And so if you were going to put new wine in old wineskins, that new wine is going to ferment and release gas. And if the old wineskins had already been stretched out, they're going to break. And so for new wine, you have to have a fresh wineskin that's going to be able to stretch and move with the expanding fermenting gas. And so there's a sense in which God is doing something new are we going to keep up with it? Now, I'm going to pause here again and ask the kids a question. Kids, what's something that you used to do when you were little, but you just don't do anymore? Oh, suck your thumb. That's, that's good. Hey, Caleb, what do you got? Oh, swallow your gum. I, I still do that sometimes. It's not, it's not good for your tummy, I don't think. What else do you not do, kids, now that you're old? Yeah, Aaron. Oh, yeah, you got to get rid of the binky. When you get older, you can't live your life with the binky the whole time. Yeah. Oh, ta- oh yeah, but then you get older, and you're like, I want to take a nap again. So that comes full circle. Caleb, what you got? You know, you got a big iPad now, not a tiny iPad. Yes. Oh, oh a giant TV. That's even better. Yes, ma'am. You don't cry as much. Okay, I'm glad nobody said diapers. I was waiting for diapers, but nobody said that. Right, so as you get older, you have new privileges and opportunities. You go from tiny iPad to big TV. You have different, you have new patterns of behavior, like Aaron said. You don't, you don't suck your thumb or your binky anymore. So as, as your life moves forward, things get different. And that's not dissimilar to, to the history of God's people. God is the same God from this day to that day through all generations. But the way that God interacts with his people isn't always the same. Back in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices and priests. And we don't do that anymore because Jesus is our great high priest who was finally sacrificed. So we don't have to go to church and kill a cow and throw its blood everywhere anymore. God is doing something new in Jesus. And so what we have to understand what we have to understand about this particular section is that fasting is not wrong. The Old Testament commanded fasting, but it only commanded fasting for all people once, and that was before the Day of Atonement. 
But what the Pharisees have done is that they've created this expectation and tradition that a central part of the life of every believer, of every person that was going to be um, a good Jew, was that you had to fast all the time. That's why the Pharisees talk about how much they fast all the time. It became such a, a central part to their operating faith. And so what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying here is not that you have to update your faith for the culture, but you have to be sensitive to how God is moving messianically. And there's a sense in which in order to do that, Jesus is saying fresh wine is for fresh wineskins. You have to break away from your man-made religious traditions and come to the Messiah and follow him instead of your traditions. One scholar puts it this way, Jesus is not an attachment or addendum to current religious practices. Jesus is preaching and proclaiming a new way to relate to God through the Messiah. But that was always what God had promised from Genesis 3.15. It's just now being realized in redemptive history. So, contra the Book of Mormon, or Christian scientists, or Seventh-day Adventists, you don't need something extra with a little bit of Jesus tacked on. You just need Jesus himself. And the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this in terms of the movement of faith is for two reasons. One, there's that, that movement through history where history kind of is moving towards Jesus and culminates in the work of Jesus. But there's also a sense in which if, if you are a disciple and you are following Jesus, over time, as you get older, you're not only going to stop sucking your thumb or, or sucking your binky, but your faith is going to grow and, and mature. Now, in that, I want to offer a warning and an encouragement. And the warning is this. There are those in the culture around us that would say, if you want a really mature faith, you need to kind of update your faith along with what the culture is saying. You need to get on the right side of history. You need to take what we know as modern, progressive people, and you need to reinterpret the Bible, reinterpret your faith, and live that out. This happened in the early 20th century. If you want to Google fundamentalist modernist controversy, go right ahead. That's, we're not going to talk about that here. Um, but it's happening now, right? If you look at the LGBTQIA movement, you know there's a lot of pressure culturally um, where now there's this grand acceptance in our culture of the LGBTQIA movement and agenda. And there's pressure as a believer to say, look, you need to kind of update your faith. And you need to understand that like, what the Bible says, that's not really what it says. You need to get on the right side of history. And you need to really just be hospitable and open to new interpretations. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your faith maturing and needing to get on the right side of history. What I am talking about is that as you grow as a believer, you are going to, to learn more and more about how great your need for Jesus is and how much more he provides for you. So there's a sense in which the movement of your faith is to one of maturity, where Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that you're going to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so the movement of faith is the disciple realizing that there is more and more opportunity, more and more elements of being transformed more to the image of the Son of Jesus. And that's what it looks like for your faith to mature. It doesn't mean get on the right side of history. It doesn't mean you grow up and you realize you don't need Jesus anymore. It means you grow up 
and you realize more and more how much you desperately need Jesus and how great he provides for you and how much more you're going to look like him now or in the future than you did when you were younger. And so to be a disciple of Christ is to understand that movement of faith in your own life because it's moved throughout history, culminating in the work of the Messiah. You see, history, it does move forward. It's moving towards an end. Um, it's moving towards a, a telos. It's moving towards a purpose. And we see that we see that happen in Jesus because we know that Jesus didn't just come to preach. Right? He came to die. And so we know that verse 20 is going to be true, that the bridegroom, that, that Jesus is going to get ripped away. We know that eventually he's going to be taken before Pilate. He's going to be taken before the authorities, and they're going to say, all right, we're going to crucify him. But we know that that crucifixion, that horrible, unjust death of Christ, that's the thing. That's what it took. That's what it cost so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins and we could be brought into the kingdom of God. That's what we needed to have happen in order to receive that righteousness by faith that we might be justified and forgiven and healed and made whole and reconciled and who were far off and brought near. You see, Jesus gets ripped away so that you and I could be brought in. But see, here's the really, really good news, is that not only does Jesus get ripped away so that we might be forgiven, Jesus gets ripped away, but then he gets resurrected. And then he ascends. And then we have a Messiah who says, I'm going to come back. I'm coming soon. And guess what we're going to do when I come back? We're going to have another marriage feast. And if your name is written in the book of life, you get to come to that table and you get to eat with me. You get to come into the new city, the new Jerusalem. But if you're not, if your book's, if your name's not in that book of life, you're outside. You remain a kingdom outsider. You remain outside where there's a lake of fire. And so the promise, the hope of the gospel is that all who believe in Jesus, not all who look good, not all those who look like good Christians, but all who believe in Jesus get to come in. But the warning is those who don't believe in Jesus, they stay on the outside for eternity. You see, Mormonism and Christian science and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, those are really pretty modern inventions. They're all kind of late 19th century up to now. But there's an earlier one. There's an earlier cult. The earliest heretical kind of group that we know about was a group called the, the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, we don't know exactly what they did. We know the, the effects of Gnosticism. But, but that, that word Gnostics comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. And so to be a part of this group, they said, look, Jesus is great. We like what Jesus is doing. But if you really want to be A-plus spiritual, if you really want to be on the right side of history, if you really want to have the best spiritual experience, you need Jesus plus this secret hidden bit of knowledge. That's how you're going to be really spiritual. And we know from the writings of Paul that this is repudiated over and over again because we know that to be a kingdom insider, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know and who knows you. And that's the Messiah, Jesus. So to be a kingdom insider, to be a kingdom insider, to follow the way of Jesus, is not to say, look at what I've done, but look what's been done for me. Look what I can look to and receive by faith, because I know I don't deserve it. 
It's not about what I've accomplished on my own resume, but what's been accomplished for me through the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who's going to come back and make all things new. You see, the thing that I want to close with is that the life and the way of a kingdom insider is not a call to achieve. The, the life and the way of a kingdom insider is a call to receive by faith what Christ accomplished for you, for your healing, for your forgiveness, for your restoration, and for your eternal hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that this world is full of brokenness and we contribute to that. Lord, we, we want to lord our, our position over others. We want to act like we've got our lives together. We want to act like we don't need you. But Lord, we need you desperately. In our sin, in our arrogance, Lord, we reject you daily. So we ask that you would give us the grace to look to you in faith, Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, the one who forgives us and redeems us, but the one who transforms us from one degree of glory to the next by the power of your Spirit. Father, help us to live as humbly confident kingdom insiders who don't look to their own merit, but look that plead the merit of your blood and your blood alone, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.